Joining us now on one-on-one -on -one is David J. Halberstam, former EVP at Westwood Sports. He was also the St. John's and Miami Heat radio play-by-play -play announcer. He's the author of Sports on New York Radio, a play-by-play -play history, and he's also the creator of sportsbroadcastjournal.com. David, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. It's cooling down a little bit here in South Florida, so uh, it's a, a little easier uh, to get out and take a, a one a one block walk without perspiring profusely. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, the weather in New York here is pretty nice as well. So far, no complaints right now. Um, you are also something I did not mention on the subcommittee for the Ford Frick Award that honors, you know, some of the most historic baseball announcers that have had real movement in this industry. Just kind of wondering, how did you get involved in that process? Well, I think what the hall was looking for uh, was really an historian. Uh, I always identify myself when I'm asked uh, what I do and who I am. And I say I'm a jack of all trades and a master at none. I've sort of done a lot of different things through the years. I was a broadcaster, as you mentioned, um, starting out in New York with the CUNY Colleges, City University of New York. Your audience would know uh, exactly who they are, schools like Queens College in Brooklyn. And I went to one, uh, Hunter College, and uh, got involved with the broadcast of the team there. Uh, always had a little entrepreneurial spirit to my the way I behave and the way I approach things. So within a couple of years, I noted this is in the early to mid 70s that St. John's University, which always had the best basketball team in New York, with all apologies to Digger Phelps at the time, who coached at Fordham University, and Hal Whistle, if the name comes back to me uh, correctly. Uh, but I started doing St. John's basketball, and that's where I did my on-air work. And I also needed to uh, get advertisers and sales, because without that, you learn in the business, you can't really succeed. So learn how to do that, and, and then embarked upon a career in both sales, uh, management, uh, as well as continuing to do some uh, basketball broadcasts with St. John's. Eventually, I was asked to run MSG Radio, create it and run it. That was back in the 80s. And along the lines there, a guy named Bob Dukowski, who was the president of MSG, asked me to also do some nicknames when the radio announcer was out. So I did that. Uh, and the next thing you know, I was asked to come down to Miami by the owner of the Miami Heat who suggested that I be head of corporate sales uh, as well as doing the Miami Heat game. So I was able to intersect uh, my two um, areas of experience. So anyhow, but I've always loved the history of broadcasting um, and how we got here. Who did the first game? Now, you guys probably know that a gentleman named Marty Glickman was very much involved with your school. Uh, Marty lived on my block in Manhattan, and I got very close with him. He was just a terrific, terrific guy. So uh, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, uh, Sports and New York Radio, and I did that with a blind man who was very well known on WFAN at the time because he always called in. His name was Dick Barhold. He passed, but he was blind, and he was a savant. 
you give him a date and you'd say November 4th, 1953, he'll tell you where he was that day because he was blind. I guess he made up um, for that disability. And um, I spent hours, days on the phone. I'd spend more time with him than I would with my wife, learning, keeping notes and all that. So uh, always had that interest. In a, uh, and the older broadcasters love to talk. They love to tell you about what it was like. So um, I've written that book. I wrote a, a, quite a few stories through the years, LA Times, Daily News, uh, USA Today. So then I decided to write the book. And uh, I got to know Bob Costas a little bit. And they needed, see, the way the Hall of Fame, see, I get to eventually answer your question. What happened with the Hall of Fame is the voters are those who are in, right? The ex-broadcasters who are in. Unfortunately, when they pass, they pass. So the voters or the voting members are those who were broadcasters plus two or three non-winners. It's myself, Kurt Smith, who wrote about the history of the game, broadcasting voices of the game, and another gentleman named Barry Horn. He's not as involved, but he's a former media columnist, excuse me, in Dallas. And uh, those three, myself, Kurt, and Horn, uh, are the three non-winners. So uh, this year, they also asked me to help out with making the ballot and um, that's how you got that press release yesterday. Now, there's one other thing. I'm not trying to uh, take command of your show, but I want people to understand how this is done. The Hall of Fame, the last six years, they do it in a cycle. So the first year it might be X team announcers. The next one in the rotation would be network announcers. And the third, which is this year, um, the third option or the third um, category is the um, are the pioneers, the early pioneers who did the games in the 20s and the 30s. And that's how we got that list. So uh, there you have it. That's what you kind of hit on there was the first question I was going to ask. I think there's so much to unpack with this award, but particular this year's category, like you mentioned, the broadcasting beginnings, those early team voices, those pioneers of baseball broadcasting. You know, you mentioned you're a jack of all trades, but being a baseball historian and a broadcast historian, one of them, can you just take us back to some of those early days of radio broadcasting and this year's nominees, whether it's Pat Flanagan or, or Ty Tyson, what makes them so unique and what you think we can learn about those early days of broadcasting today? Well, one of the things you learn, and I've learned this a long time ago, is always have great respect for those who started something where there is no history, there's no real uh, format or any, any sort of conceptual framework of how to go ahead and do a baseball game. So the first man who was sort of the progenitor of, of, of radio sports, radio altogether actually, um, radio was invented 100 years ago, 1921. Uh, by 1924, NBC came into place as the NBC radio network and later the CBS radio network about a year after NBC. And um, as they uh, set this up, there was one broadcaster. He was sort of the host of everything. His name is Graham McNamee. 
he died a young man in 1944, I think. And McNamee was asked to go do a football game. He was asked to go and host a political convention. He was asked to go and host music shows. He did a ton of different things, but he had no expertise, particularly in sports. And uh, he did it all. And for the first eight or nine years, he did some of the biggest events there in the country. In those early years, you had boxing, which was huge. You had the World Series, which was huge. And um, you, you also had college football. The NFL didn't mean very much in those years. And they, Graham would do all those big games, the big Tunney Dempsey fights, number one and number two, which galvanized the entire country. And uh, after a while, like anything else, uh, radio figured out that they can't just have one man do everything. It's just not very efficient, very effective, and it lacks expertise. So they hired sports guys. And the first two big sports names uh, in radio, and Glickman uh, knew both, uh, Ted Using, H-U-S-I-N-G, he was probably the first sportscaster, the first man to even create depth charts Hmm. how you guys do football games or broadcasters. And, and the other thing that he did, believe it or not, back in those days, the football officials did not have um, signals to, to call an offside or call a personal foul. So he worked with the officials so that the broadcasters upstairs would have an idea of what's going on down on the field. So uh, using and Stern, Bill Stern was the other, were huge names in those days. And if you think Al Michaels is known today, back in the 30s, Ted Using and, um, and, and Bill Stern were huge, huge names. So um, that's pretty much how radio started. And then from there, it mushroomed and and there were tentacles from, from there. And Glickman was the first to create basketball on radio. He gave, he gave the game the lexicon, um, the nomenclature to, to be able to call a game because before him, there really wasn't basketball on radio. And, and often you guys do a lot of uh, basketball. And then of course, a man you may never have heard of uh, called, uh, named Vince Scully. And Scully joined the WFUV, uh, and he's just beyond brilliant. So he doesn't need my accolades. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned a lot of big names there. You mentioned Vince Scully, someone who's won the, the Frick Award before. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about the award before we transition forward to some other topics is about Ford Frick himself, because as you mentioned, working with the Baseball Hall of Fame and Frick, such an interesting character to kind of be the name of this award. Can you just talk, talk a little bit about your, you know, what you know about him and the, what you've learned about him and why he is the right name to be, uh, you know, at the top of the Ford C. Frick Award? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there have been members, I can't name them, uh, winners who think it should be the Vin Scully Award. Hmm. Uh, but I don't think you'll, you'll ever get any consensus on that. Um, Frick himself was a writer and Frick himself did some broadcasting. Uh, so he moved from that public relations area and he evolved into being an executive. He was president of the American League and then came uh, his, his role as a commissioner uh, of all of baseball. Uh, but he was a baseball official who had gone the same road of being a broadcaster. Of course, what he's best known for 
and I'd say notorious would probably be the best word. In 1961, when Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's record, he was the commissioner, and he insisted that Maris has an, would have an asterisk near his name for breaking the record because Ruth did it in 154 games. By then, baseball was up to 162 when Maris did it. So he insisted, Frick did, that he have an asterisk near his name. Now, that was later uh, adjusted, and um, the, the asterisk has been removed. But that's why Frick's name is attached to the award, just as Marty Glickman, uh, who was the first to get it in the NBA from the Basketball Hall, his name is actually attached to Kurt Gowdy, uh, which I don't fully understand, but Gowdy gave a lot of money. He was a wealthy man and helped the, uh, helped the NBA or the Basketball Hall of Fame with, uh, with some financial issues when they had him. Uh, Fort Frick, uh, excuse me, um, Foster Hewitt in hockey was the first broadcaster of hockey in Toronto. And football is another controversial issue. It's called the Pete Rozelle Award. And of course, Rozelle, a great commissioner who also came out of PR. But the issue there is they have not put in Brent Musburger, who meant so much to football, nor did they put in uh, Howard Cosell, who made football prime time with Monday Night Football. Yeah, uh, you know, you just mentioned, or at least I mentioned in the intro, and you definitely talked about a lot of a lot of different things you've done in the industry, forty plus years. I was kind of wondering as we shift more to your personal life here, what has kind of been the driving factor into diving into all these different adventures, doing all these different things in the industry for how long you've been a part of it? Well, I think it's very important. Sales in any um, in any function or in any entity is critical. Uh, and I always enjoyed it because you got to know a lot of very powerful people at big companies. And if you can sell, you'll always make a living. A lot of people lose their jobs in broadcasting. And when they do, they don't know where to go. If you can sell, you'll always make a living. You'll go out in a street corner with a cup and you'll sell something and you'll make a living. So I always liked that. A lot of broadcasters I've found in recent years, especially now when I do my sports broadcast journal, a lot of them um, do some things on the side. They'll sell real estate because no job is, is, is secure. And especially I'm seeing radio, they don't want to pay these people big money anymore. So it's uh, people have to find some sort of backup. You know, they've got families and they've got to put food on the table. And uh, one of, we actually did an interview recently with somebody who just echoed those same words. A young broadcaster said, you know, always invest in marketing, get a degree in marketing to us as, as students. So definitely a lot of that, that reigning true. And I'm curious for you, as, as you've talked a lot about the radio market, you spent, we see the Miami Heat hat on now, you spend a lot of time down in Florida, but you started up here in New York. And I'm curious, you wrote the, the book, obviously, Sports on New York Radio. Can you talk a little bit about what makes New York such a unique place for the birth of sports radio and some of the most influential names to come out of it? Well... For one thing, it's the biggest market in the country. Uh, and usually if the biggest does something, people follow. Uh, and the way radio actually started, if I have a minute, I'll explain that too. Sure. There, the origins of radio are really in, from ship to shore 
communication. And where did radio come from? Well, you had um, ships who were sailing and how did they communicate with the shore that they'll be in, in, in um, they'll arrive <clears throat> at a certain time, whatever needs they have. So the fellow who ran NBC at the time was, was called RCA, I believe at the time, but his name was David Sarnoff. And Sarnoff had this brilliant idea that if you can transmit from a ship and anybody can hear it because it's going through the ethers, through the airwaves, why can't you do that in, in, a, in a more public way where it's, uh, where it's radio, uh, where everybody can get it? So he, and his first thought, Sarno's first thought was um, that it, you, it, the revenue would not be generated by advertising. He thought of the, the idea of radio to him was that people would listen to music and they'd buy the, the actual box, the, the transmit, not the transmitter, but the audio box and use that for uh, entertainment from the music. And it, at that point, RCA was a manufacturer. They made record players, they did other things. So they thought the money would come in through purchases of those music boxes. And of course, everything turned out a lot differently. After it went on, they got sponsors and that's what really what radio turned into. So that was how the beginning of radio came on. And in July 2nd, 1921, there was a huge, huge uh, fight about the big boxing match between um, Dempsey, uh, Jack Dempsey was the heavyweight champion and um, I'm forgetting the name right now, uh, but there was a huge fight and they were gonna have 100,000 people. His name was Car Carpentier, a Frenchman, C-A-R-P-E-N-T-I-E-R, uh, -E I believe. And he was in that huge fight. Everybody anticipated that, that big fight. And they built a little stadium for it, 100,000 seats in Hoboken, New Jersey. And the idea was now, how are we going to try to make radio work? So Lowe's theaters allowed people to come into their theater and they would listen to the fight from that stadium. And that demonstrated radio's great popularity. That was July 2nd, 1921. And from there, radio sort of erupted. And um, yeah, that, you know, you had little stations beginning to uh, grow and get licenses from the um, FCC. And radio sort of exploded from there. And after the war, we went on to television. Yeah. Um, and then from television, kind of, we've went on to now this digital age. And that's what I wanted to get into. Just a few more questions. Sure. Thanks again for taking the time with us. You know, the website that you created, founded, sportsbroadcastjournal.com, I think is a fascinating concept. Wondering where you got the idea for that and how you kind of put that into motion. I'll tell you something, because it's about three, uh, it's my fourth year. Uh, I call it a labor of love. But what I learned, really, I'm retired. And, and thankfully, I, I have some investment. So I 
my I don't need the income and I don't get any income. I don't sell ads or anything I like that, at least at this point. But I just like writing. And I thought this would be a good idea. And I thought maybe I'd write once or twice a week and just get it off my shoulders or, or uh, opportunity to express myself. And I started hearing from people and I started doing all sorts of things to um, that I, I'd hear about, say, Tom Brenneman getting, getting fired. And that got me a little angry about a bunch of things. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a sounding board you know, for me. Uh, and, but what's happened is it's gotten big. I do it all myself. And that's why occasionally you'll see spelling mistakes or typos. I don't have anybody else here who works with me. But what this is geared to, sportsbroadcastjournal.com, really an industry a publication. The young kids like you who are going into this business, um, or even broadcasters today. I mean, I did a story last week. I heard from, from Jim Nance, right? Um, I've gotten to know a lot of these guys a lot better than I did before. So it gives me an opportunity. And I also, because I'm not incumbent to anybody, I, no one could fire me. I, I don't need, I'm not Donald Trump or whatever he says he is, uh, but I have enough, I have enough going on so no one can threaten me by saying, unless you want to talk about the cancel culture, but I'm not going to do that now. So I, I think, I think what, what you really see is my labor of love. I express things the way I believe it. And I know everybody reads this from within the broadcast area. And I started it with barely 100 people a week when I first started. And now it's a heck of a lot more. So... Uh, I'm enjoying it, but it's taking a lot of my time. That's and I've oh, by the way, I've also used a lot of interns from schools like uh, UW Madison, uh, Colorado University, Arizona State. These kids like writing, and they like writing about broadcasting. Uh, so I, this is really geared for young budding broadcasters who want to learn. A couple of weeks ago. We had a story by a guy named Chuck Caton, one of the greatest hockey announcers ever on radio. And he, he did up a story, sort of a, uh, an instructional story on how to do hockey, what, what you do day a game, what you do before when you talk to the coaches. Um, so I want people to learn. And, and you talk about Glickman. I'm going to have something on him and how he felt about broadcasters of his age and of his day. And he died just... Uh, 2001, so it's not like eons ago. And you'll, you'll see some very interesting thoughts that he had on Al Michaels or Bob Costas or any of these guys. And by the way, um, I must credit Bob Costas because he uh, was the one who recommended me for the Hall of Fame uh, volunteer job. So he is just one of the nicest people. People don't know that about Bob. Bob Costas, Vince Scully, Brent Musburger are the three uh, greatest uh, orators that I know who are on radio. Tremendous ability um, to express himself. Never gropes for the right word. I mean, one day I put the radio on in the car and he's talking about somebody being um, uh, an idologue or an intransigent idologue. 
And I'm thinking, whoa, this guy, he, I just love the guy. He's just a tremendous guy, one, most, one of the most talented I've, I've ever heard. And Vin Scully is right up there, too. Uh, there won't be broadcasters like that again um, uh, for, for many years. And there are a lot of good ones today. I think the problem with broadcasters today, they're homogenous. They all sound alike. They're given a um, tutorial as to how to broadcast the game. They all broadcast it very well, but you can't distinguish one from the next. You want to take guys out who are different. You can take a Bob Wuschusen is, is one guy who's very good. I'm sure you know him, and he's different. Then there are others. I, I myself, a student of it, I can't even figure out one from the next. That was kind of the last question I wanted to ask you to wrap up here is you talked about three of the best broadcasters to ever live. You talked about some of the broadcasters of today. How would you kind of define where you see the broadcast medium heading in the future? I was watching another interview where you talked about the impact of streaming and how that's kind of changing in some ways for the better. What's going on right now? Because we could just talk a little bit about how you see kind of the future outlook of broadcasting and what that might look like. Well, uh, the one thing that concerns me the most is I don't think uh, they're trying to find ways to cut. Um, budgets and, and cut expenses. And sadly, you sometimes learn or you, um, out of something bad comes something good, at least from their, from their uh, management perspective. And you're just seeing where they don't want to travel the announcers. And I think that's not good. It's not good because they, you're not at a game, you can't do it very well. I don't care what people say. You get used to it. And it's efficient, but if you can't if you can't be there, you're not going to be there. So I think that's one major area. I don't know where PC is going to be. That's going to really be something that will be a result of the uh, of the political culture. Um, and I also think radio. I've got some concerns about. It. You've seen a couple of hockey teams go to a simulcast, uh, so I'm not sure the. I don't know how many people listen to hockey on radio anymore. So um, hockey, I think, will be one that will be scrutinized and see, we'll see what, what, whatever comes of it. But um, I think radio has got an issue. Uh, TV does not. Uh, I, I don't like the idea of what the Mannings do on, on TV because you're either watching a game and the announcer is, is a parallel in what you're seeing. Or you can, I watch the Mannings. They'll, they'll make great analysts as in, in a regularly formatted broadcast, but I don't, they'll, they'll, it'll, they'll find some sort of balance, but I don't know where that's going. Yeah, just some really interesting perspective on the industry. It's one that we don't get often. So we do really appreciate you, David, for taking the time with us. That's all we have for you. Thank you again. Stick around right here for more one-on-one. -on -one.